Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Let's pray, all right? Father, bless our time together. Help us focus. Um, I know I do, and I think probably most of us have a lot going on. Uh, Personally, ministry-wise, family-wise, there's a lot going on. Uh, Help us for the next few minutes together be all here and be mentally and spiritually uh, attentive to you, attentive to your word. And, Lord, there's a promise in James 4.8. You say when we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And so we want to cash in on that promise. Uh, That's really what we're seeking to do here. Uh, more than get seminary credit, we are seeking to draw near to you. So we are asking you, Holy Spirit, draw near to us. And would you take, in some sense, very basic concepts, and would you make them alive? Would you set them on fire? Uh, Would you burn your truth more deeply into our hearts so that we'll understand it better, but even more importantly, so that we'll love the truth uh, and there'll be more joy and obedience? Make us into the men and the women you want us to be. We pray all this in Christ's name. Okay, last week we talked about, um, and I think I sent out an email. Uh, so, did everybody get the email with the link where you can hear the recorded sermons that I sent out? Everybody get that? Okay, great. So, if you missed class, just listen to the recording. Maybe there's video in it. Who knows? If you're big about video, ask somebody else. I don't know how to do that, and I'm certainly not going to worry about it right now. Listen to the recording. Um, but, last week we talked about... Basically, what is a covenant? Okay, a covenant is a solemn relationship that has conditions, but it also um, it has consequences, good or bad, depending on how you respond. Today, we're going to talk about the moral law. What is the moral law? Okay, now, here's one thing that makes this concept a little tricky. I was talking with one of you uh, after class last week about the law and how that is applied in Christian's life. And that, in one sense, that's the whole thing we're talking about, all quarter, semester, whatever this is. The word law in the Bible can be used in different ways. You understand what I mean? Right? Just like the, lo- the word love in the English language can be used in different ways. You can say, I love my wife. And you can also say, I love taking a nap on Sunday afternoons. There's something similar there. You really like both things. You enjoy both things. But hopefully you mean something a little bit different, right? I love my wife is like, I would die for her. I would take a bullet for her. If somebody's like, would you take a bullet so that you could take a Sunday nap? Nope, not going to do that, right? There's something different. And the word law is similar in the Bible. Sometimes it can refer to the moral law. We're going to describe, that's what we're going to focus on today. And in this whole class, if you're ever like, I'm not sure what way Olin meant the law, I mean the moral law, unless I specify something different. Okay? Sometimes it can mean the ceremonial law. Sometimes it can mean the civil law. Sometimes it can mean the mosaic law. Sometimes it can mean law just like a principle, kind of like it does in art. Sometimes we'll say the law of gravity, right? So when you're reading the Bible, you have to slow down. You have to get the context. What does the word law really mean? We're talking about the moral law today. Three points. The first one is just this. What is the law? What is the moral law? And maybe here's the easiest way to say it. It's a revelation of the heart of God. It's a revelation of the character of God. Now, what is the shortest summary of the moral law in the Bible? This would be the crowd participation part. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbors yourself. There you go. Okay, it's Matthew 22, Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Okay, these are the greatest two commandments, and everything hangs on them. Okay, listen to what he says. Matthew 22, if you want to flip there, uh, you can skip down to verse 37. 
and then really at verse 40, he says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, when a Jewish rabbi in the first century said the law and the prophets, what does he mean? It's the whole Old Testament. Like all that stuff. All that stuff that we have a hard time understanding. He's like, let me just boil it down to you. The foundation of all that stuff is love God, love people. There it is. Summed up. Okay. Um, now, if, if you wanted to go even maybe shorter than that, okay, is that, it's dangerous. Like, wait, do we want to make it shorter than what Jesus made it? How could you maybe even go shorter than that? I mean, First John 4, 8 just says God is love. Isn't that right? It's love God, love people. It's love. That's really what the law, the moral law, is all about. John Stott said, God is love and is in most being. So in a very real sense, the law is just an extension of who God is. Okay, The moral law is really, hey, God is saying, this is what I'm like. This is what's good. This is what's beautiful. This is what's right. This is what's pure. So this is what I want my people to be like. Think about the Ten Commandments. Why is it wrong to kill? Because God's a creator. God gives people life. God's alive. God rejoices in life. So don't take life away. Unless you have a legitimate reason, right? Why is it sin to commit adultery? Because God's a covenant keeper, not a covenant breaker. God's a faithful God. So we should be a faithful people. Does that make sense? And you could do that with all the Ten Commandments. Um, flip over really quick to Romans chapter 13. You get this in a couple of different place, places in the Pauline epistles. As Paul's kind of explaining this in his shorthand. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. You see what he's doing there? He just boils it down. You really want to obey the law? Just love people. And then look, he starts to explain the Ten Commandments. The commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay? Practically, if you want to fulfill the moral law, what do you do? You love God, you love your neighbor. Galatians chapter 5, you get a very similar thing. If you want to flip over there, or you can just listen. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. Which, you know, Galatians is the shorter verse. Somebody said Galatians is, when, is what? Is Romans when Paul was a little younger and more angry. Right? He wrote Galatians kind of in a hurry when he was mad. And then later, as he was a little more mature and seasoned, he said, let me give you the, the bigger, longer version. But the same themes are all there. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let me just pause here for a second. Does anything about what Paul just said bother you in comparison with what Jesus said when he summed up the law? Or does anything seem off to you? Yeah, he didn't even mention the part about loving God. Why do you think that is? And we'll probably look at this later in, a, in another class. But imagine, you know, we were talking about Jacob having an evangelistic conversation here recently. Imagine if you're trying to talk to somebody and you know this guy. Maybe this is like a friend, a college roommate or something. And you're saying to this guy, this girl, you know what? I love you. I, I got to be honest. I don't think you're a real Christian. And they're like, how dare you? Why would you say that? And you say, well, 
I don't think you love God. Think about how easy it is for them to say, of course I love God. You don't know all the feelings I have in my heart for God. You don't know how much time I spend alone reading the Bible, praying, going to church, worshiping, whenever I'm alone in my car, singing, where I, of course I love God. That's kind of easy to evade, right? But if you say, I don't think you love your neighbor, it's a lot easier to say, and let me give you about 20 examples because I see the way you treat other people. You understand what I'm saying? It's easy for her to tell ourselves, of course I love God. But the test of if I really love God is, does it overflow into love for neighbor? Right? That's in a sense the proof. That's the evidence. I mean, in a lot of sense, that's what First John is teaching. How can you say you love God who you've never seen? We don't love your brother who you see every day. Okay. So what is the law? It's just a revelation of the heart of God, his character. It's about love. Okay, second point. Where is the law? Where is the law? Now, remember, we looked at this passage last week. Uh, we won't flip there. So instead, flip to the right, Ephesians chapter 4. But while you're just turning there, remember Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, right? When God made mankind, He made them male and female in His image. And part of what it means to be in God's image, it's not that God has a body just like we do. Certainly not God the Father, God the Spirit in heaven. But what it means is, we reflect His character. We're spiritual in nature like Him. And before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve had the law of God written on their heart. Okay, Look at what Ephesians 4, chapter 24 says. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. I mean, one way to think about what does it mean to become a Christian, what does it mean to get sanctified, is God, in a sense, is recreating you back into that type of innocence and perfection that Adam and Eve had, righteousness and holiness, a pure, right reflection of who God is. Okay, and even better now, in some sense. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 4, part 2, says this. They, meaning Adam and Eve, had the law of God written in their hearts. The marrow of modern divinity said it this way, okay, Adam heard as much of the law in the garden as Israel did at Sinai, but only in fewer words and without thunder. Just think about that. In some sense, when God said to Adam, Hey, Adam, here's the conditions of this covenant. You love me. You serve me. You work in my garden. You tend it for me. You obey me. That's how you love me. And, oh, yeah, I'm going to give you a wife. You're supposed to care for her. You're supposed to lead her. You're supposed to shut... You love me, you love your neighbor. Make sense? It was there from the very beginning. Okay? So, point one is, the law of God is written into the heart of man. Now, the problem is, okay, ever since sin entered the human race, the image of God remains in us, and yet it's shattered. Imagine, this is the illustration that helps me the most. Imagine that you have, you know, imagine that you have a full-length mirror in your bathroom, your closet, or whatever that you can look at, and somebody throws a rock and they shatter the mirror. Now, in some sense, if I look in this full-length mirror, I will still see a reflection of my image, but it will be very broken and tarnished, right? It won't be as clear. It won't be as obvious. That's a great picture of, in what sense is the moral law of God still written on the hearts of even the biggest sinner in the universe? It's cracked, it's shattered, it's broken, and yet it's still there. So let's just look at... A few different uh, passages to think about this. Flip back to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. 
Well, don't flip to Genesis 4. Flip to Genesis 9, okay? But let me just, while you're flipping to Genesis 9, let me point out a couple of different things. Think about in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. Right? I mean, even some of the worst people in the world, even if they don't always obey that, they at least get it, right? They may say something like, well, you know what? I'll lie and I'll cheat, you know, and I'll steal, but I would never hit a woman. They they got some kind of standard. And so if they got somebody else that lives in their neighborhood and they're like, man, that guy hit his wife. That's t- I would never do that because they're thinking this is my personal standard. We, we all still have some sense of morality and rightness and wrongness, even if it's warped. Does that make sense? So think about Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Is there any record of God ever saying before Genesis chapter 4, thou shalt not murder? There's not. But when God showed up and said, hey, Cain, where's your brother Abel? He said, am I my brother's keeper? God didn't say, oh, you're right. Technically, I never told you this whole murder thing's bad. God said, no, no, no. What you did is wrong. And his blood is crying. You should have known. You did know. Even though you're a sinner, you were born from two sinners. That law of God is written on your heart. You know better. Okay. Look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Okay. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Okay, now this would be what's called the part of the Noahic covenant, which is an interesting covenant because it's made not with just the people of God, it's made with all creation. And there's this law written in all creation, don't murder. And if you murder, you deserve to be executed. It's, just, it's written in fundamentally to all people. Now go back to Romans I think maybe the clearest way that we can see and understand this is in Romans. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. Famous verse, okay? Great apologetic verse if you're ever arguing with somebody that claims to be an atheist. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And one of the ways that he's shown it to us is it's internal. See, look at the phrase right before verse 19. They suppress the truth. They've got the truth in them. They've got enough truth. Do they have all the truth? No. But they have enough truth to be responsible. And they press it down. They don't want to know the truth. And guys, let's just be honest for a second. Even as mature Christians in full-time ministry, don't we do this same thing sometimes? Hold a little white lie. I'm kind of convicted, but I don't really want to have to go back and confess that white lie because that'll just look stupid and silly. And so, ah, I'll just press that conviction down. It's not that bad. It could have been a lot worse. Apart from Christ, that's our nature. We push the truth down. We suppress it. We don't want to know. There's a willful blindness. Romans 2. Skip down to verse 14. Right? Romans chapter 1 is saying, you know what? Everybody knows. Everybody knows. Everybody's responsible. They've got enough knowledge to be responsible. What he starts to do in Romans chapter 2 is he says, well, what about pagans? What about Jews that have the law? What about pagans? And look at what he says. 
Gentiles were, were, the, were the pagans, so to speak. They didn't have the Word of God. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have the Law and the Prophets. They didn't have the moral law of God written down. But look at what he says in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Even the most wicked person out there still has some remnant of the moral law of God on their heart and they have a conscience that accuses and defends them sometimes. And that, that, is, that is the normal experience of every human being. From the worst sinner to the greatest saint. Is that at times it's like, I think, I think I'm doing the right thing. I feel right. And then other times you feel accused and convicted. I think I did the wrong thing. So, where's the law? It's on our heart. It's in our minds. It's implanted in us. Yes, it's also written down. Okay. And then the third question would be this. How is the law? How is the law? And that may seem weird, but I'll explain what I mean. And it's two things, okay? The law is broken. The law is broken. And let's just look at several places. Uh, we looked last week at Genesis 3-5 when they chose to sin. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. How is the moral law of God doing on planet Earth? How is the moral law of God doing in the human race? It's being broken, right? I mean, this seems like an obvious point, but let's just beat this dead horse for a minute, okay? Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. This is right before the flood. Such a terrible thing. God wiped out basically everybody on planet Earth. All the animals, almost all of them. Why did he do it? Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Apart from Christ, even though we know the law, we say, I don't care. I want to do what I want to do all the time. And even the person that seems really moral externally, and y'all know this, right, but it's important to remind, listen, I have next-door neighbors. They're from, you know, India, the subcontinent India. And they're Hindus. They're devout Hindus. They're probably trying to evangelize me into Hinduism as much as I'm trying to evangelize them into Christianity, which is not near enough, okay? But here's the thing. At the human level, understand, they, they are nice, friendly, kind, warm, trustworthy people. I would even go as far as say at the human level, they're good people. You understand what I mean by that? They're good neighbors. Their kids used to babysit our kids, and I wasn't, like, terrified, they're nice. They have a garden in their backyard. They give me free vegetables and stuff. They want to talk. How are your kids? You know, they have a grandbaby. They want to show it off. They're nice neighbors. They're good people. They serve people. But if the Bible's true, what it says is all of their external good works at the heart is evil because it's not being done out of true love for the one true God, and that makes it evil, Right? Uh, go to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Skip down to verse 36. This is Solomon in one of his great prayers. He's praying to the Lord. He's dedicating the temple. And he says, talking about the people of God, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Right? That was the assumption in the Old Testament kind of at the height of the glory of Israel, the golden years. 
David had conquered and expanded the kingdom. There's total peace. Solomon comes in. This is when he's still walking with God. They're dedicating the temple. But Solomon says, hey, when we sin, because you know, nobody gets away without sinning. Right? How about David? We all know Psalm 51 where he says, from conception. Right? Because I was, I was sinful from conception. And he's not saying his mom committed adultery or anything like that. He's just saying... From the very beginning, I had sin in my heart. I may not have committed adultery till I was late in life, but the little seed of adultery was always in my heart. In some sense, this shouldn't be shocking. In some sense, what should be shocking is that I made it this far. Now listen, please hear me. That can never be an excuse for sin, right? Not, not worth it. I got a friend I know a guy. He's walking with the Lord right now did have an affair, and he did get, you know, a divorce. And part of what he told me, and I, I really appreciate his honesty and humility, he said, you know, at some point when I was wrestling with this, and I think he's really a believer, blew it, it was short-lived. He said, when I was wrestling with this, he said, the thought went through my mind, well, David did something like this. And he kind of got away with it and turned out okay. It's dangerous logic. Yeah, God was very gracious. But there was also some severe consequences, like a dead baby, right? I mean, God is, God, is, God is so gracious, it's almost unimaginable. It almost encourages us to sin sometimes, right? But God is so holy, too. There, there, there's, a, there's a paradox there, and we've got to live in it. He is such a tender, kind, gracious Father, and yet He is a very serious, severe holy king and by grace and faith we got to live in that okay go to ecclesiastes ecclesiastes chapter 7 again solomon got into a lot of sin in his life i think the best understanding is before he died he really repented he probably wrote ecclesiastes late in life he came back around wisest man right wisest man to ever live before jesus Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Doesn't exist, right? And then a verse that we probably all know, New Testament, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And who is John writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. We still have sin in us. Okay. So, God's law and the covenant of creation were broken. Like we said, probably on the first day of creation. Okay. Everybody go to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Um, y'all have heard this language before. But in Paul's mind, there was a first Adam and there was a second Adam. Okay. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam... And death through sin. Why do people die? Because we sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, this is interesting, and we're, we may come back to this, but part of what Paul is saying there is it's really twofold. When somebody dies and goes to hell, why do they die and go to hell? It's really for two reasons. It's because Adam sinned, and they were in Adam when he sinned. I mean, to get... A little graphic, but biblical. They were in his loins, so to speak. And because they're also a sinner. It's federal headship. 
right? If uh, President Biden right now decides, I declare war on Russia, and for whatever reason, we're a pacifist, we don't like President Biden, whatever reason, we say, no, 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 I don't want to be at war with Russia. Doesn't matter what you think. If you're a United States citizen, you're at war with Russia. He declared war. Make sense? No. Technically, you say, well, it has to get Congress, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, in some sense, he is our federal representative. Now, that can really bug an American, right? Independence, I'll stand and fall by my own works and merits, right? But don't, don't go too far with that because it messes up something really good if you do. Flip over to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You get the same logic. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, skip down to verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And that obviously doesn't mean all people that ever live, but all the people that are going to be made alive. There's only one way to get made alive, and it's in Christ. Okay. So how is the law of God? It's broken. It was broken by our federal head, and it's broken by all of us subsequent sinners. But then the second thing that we've already mentioned, but let's go back to Romans chapter 1. We'll just spend a little time here. Romans chapter 1. How is the law? It's broken and it's suppressed. Now, Paul probably was thinking about Genesis chapter 3 when he wrote Romans chapter 1. So let's just read it in that light. Think about this, okay? Romans chapter 1, let's start in verse 18. Everything before that is basically introduction. Romans chapter 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Side note, this is important. One of the ways that we suppress the truth, guys, is we just keep persevering in sin, Right? Either the Holy Spirit or our conscience is saying, stop it, don't do that again. You know, I started doing kind of a new kind of workout maybe 10 years ago. You do a lot of pull-ups and stuff. I hadn't been used to being doing that. And when I was first doing it, like almost once a week, I was ripping my hands and I'd come out of the gym, my hands would be bleeding. Okay, anybody else ever had this experience? You know, not fun. But I've been doing it so long now, I can't remember. It, my, my hands haven't ripped in years. Why? Because I have calluses. They got hard, it got sick of being ripped, so at some level the body decided, I'll just make harder skin there. And our spiritual heart does the same thing. If we get sick of being convicted and we keep persevering, eventually our heart just starts to harden over in that area. Right? When some great famous minister falls and we're all kind of shocked, how could that happen? He seemed to love people and love the world. Because you probably, listen, it didn't just happen overnight. You probably got to trace it back 10 or 20 years, and he started making tiny, small compromises. And a callus got on his heart in that one certain area. And it can happen to me, and it can happen to you. So be careful. Don't suppress the truth. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and that the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So it's not just that we know there's a God from our internal conscience. It's that we know there's a God from everything that we see, right? Creation, right? Psalm chapter 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse declares His, his majesty. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. I mean, you don't literally hear a word. 
but their line has gone out through the whole earth. Everybody can see it. Everybody knows about it. Listen, even the person that's blind, deaf, and dumb, in a sense, they can feel the wind blow on their skin, and they know there's something. There's a creator. You can't get away from it. You know, somebody, I don't know if it was just a book or something they said, said, uh, God doesn't believe in atheists. There's, there's no such thing as a real atheist. Now, be real careful where you use that because you can come off like an arrogant, self-righteous jerk. Right? You're on campus talking to a student and they're like, well, I'm an atheist. No, you're not. God says you're a liar. You know? Probably will ruin your evangelism. Okay? But that should just give you confidence. Deep down, this person knows they're a God. I heard Randy Pope one time. Y'all may have heard this, you know, uh, old pastor at uh, Perimeter. And he said he was meeting with a guy for lunch one time. And he had a relationship with this guy. And the guy said, you know, I'm just an atheist. I don't believe in God. And Randy said, okay. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to start praying every day that God will ruin your life and make you suffer. And the guy said, no, 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 don't pray that. He said, ah, agnostic. <laughs> Maybe there's a God. Right? If you really don't believe... Right? If somebody said, Olin, I'm going to start praying to Santa Claus every day that he ruin your life, I'm like, knock yourself out. Waste your freaking time. I could care less. But deep down we know. It gives us confidence. Okay? We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 21, for although they knew God, again, think about Adam and Eve, but think about everybody since then as well. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Guys, just pause here for a second. Part of how that that process of callousness gets started in our hearts is when we quit thanking God. Listen, when you're struggling and there's temptation and you feel like you're slipping, one of the best things you can do is just have more thanksgiving. Thank you for the wind. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for air conditioning. Thank you for ice water. Thank you for basic stuff. Keep your heart soft. When my kids were younger, okay, you know, they used to come and they complain about something. Dad, all my friends in my class have the brand new iPhone and I don't have the brand new iPhone and my life stinks. And I'd be like, that's not true. And my wife would be like, I think it actually technically is true. And I'd be like, I don't care. You're still not getting the brand new iPhone, you know. My, my life is miserable. You know, I want the brand new iPhone. And I'd say, listen, I'm not going to continue having this conversation with you until you go into your room and you get a piece of paper and a pen and you write down 30 good things in your life. Well, I can't even think of 30 good things. I said, well, let me see, show you how this is going to work. I'm going to take your old crappy iPhone away from you until you come up with 30 things. Seriously! You know, and I'd say, let me just give you a couple of suggestions. Clean air. Running water. Hot water. A house that you didn't pay for. There's four, you know, and what would happen is they go, they do it, and they come in. And, and almost always, there would there'd be humility. There'd be gratitude. Sometimes when they got sick of that exercise, because unfortunately this happened more than once, okay? I'd say, okay, we're not going to do the pen and paper thing this time. Here's what we're going to do. Go watch the news for just five minutes. The news, the boy, baby. Once again, give me your phone, right? That's just like the lever on their little hearts. You know, once you take their phone, they'll do anything you want, okay? Go turn on the news channel. I don't care. You can watch the conservative news or the liberal news. You can watch freaking Al Jazeera if you want to. I don't care. Turn on the news channel and watch it for five minutes and come back and then we'll have this conversation. What'd you see? There was a tornado, a bunch of people died, 
There was a flood, there was a bomb, some scandal, some lie. You, you understand what I'm doing here? And listen, we got to do the same thing with our own hearts on a daily basis. Something hard happens, something bad happens, some temptation that seems so plausible and tempting, we got to say, wait a second, wait a second. Let me say it two ways. If you're living in America in the 21st century, it's not perfect by a long shot, right? But it's a lot better than being a slave in Nepal in the 14th century. So just practically, it's like we won the golden lottery ticket, right? Free refills when you go to the you know, gas station. But if you're in Christ... Even if you have a terrible life, even if you are a slave in Nepal in the 14th century and you're in Christ, you're going to die and sit on a throne with Jesus in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. What is there to complain about? Nothing. Ever. Period. End of sentence. And to the degree, guys, that we can live in that, it's so freeing, it's so empowering, it's so humbling, it's so uplifting, it's motivating for real holiness. When you don't go that way, your heart gets dark. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Listen, all of the people out there discounting the Bible, discounting God, promoting all kinds of perversity because of all their wisdom and all their PhDs, literally they're fools. I mean, here's a good layman's definition of a fool. A fool's a practical atheist. There may not be any such thing as a real atheist, but a practical atheist is somebody that lives as if there is no God. That's what it means to be a fool. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They started they, they could have worshipped God. And we start worshipping ourselves and the gifts, and even making little stone statues of people or birds or snakes or whatever and worshiping those things. Well, nobody I know is worshiping statues. Well, how about the next verse? Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Again, why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And oftentimes, guys... The creature that we're worshiping and serving is myself, right? I want to be God. I want to do whatever I want to do. I want it my way right away. It's all about me. I worship myself. I serve myself. Doesn't go well. For this reason, God gave them up, same phrase, to dishonorable passions for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty of their error. One of the interesting things, and I don't want to get off and have a whole tangent here, but one of the interesting things about homosexuality, just think about it. Right? Ephesians 5, a man and a woman falling in love, getting married, sleeping together, is supposed to be an image of Christ and the church. The Lord Jesus Christ, who in one sense is similar to us because he became a human, and yet in another sense he's really different than us. And the two come together, and life is produced. Right? At the end of the day, part of what's so sinful about homosexuality 
is it's a denial of that gospel truth. And it's not any longer us, you know, Christ saving somebody different than him and us worshiping somebody different than us. It's us saying, I want to worship myself. Literally, I want to worship and love a replica of myself. You understand what I'm saying? It's a gospel lie. And, you know, I don't know. I'm not the expert in the whole culture wars, but probably one of the reasons that we lost the culture war, and we pretty much have, right, is because arguments like, well, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, don't get you that far. You know what I mean? And we got to go a little bit deeper and, and more gentle and compassionate, but also more pointed. The guys, this is not just some random sexual sin. That's not the real problem. It's a gospel lie. That's the real problem. It's denying something about God and about salvation and about worship. So there's all kinds of sexual sin. Okay. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Now, there's that phrase three times. Verse 24, verse 26, verse 20. God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. Let me make the same point that I made a little bit earlier, but from a different angle, like the callus on your heart. Sometimes if you do have some little tiny sin, pet sin, not that big of a deal sin, and you kind of think, I'm getting away with it. I'm doing so many other good things. Yes, I keep kind of sinning in this one little area, but it's not that bad. You know, And God doesn't seem to be getting mad at me. God's still blessing my life and my ministry and my family. Maybe it doesn't really bother God that much. You ever had a thought like that? I have. But you know what this passage says? You better be careful. Because one of the ways that God gives discipline to sin sometimes is He says, I'll just give you up to it for a little while and let you suffer the real consequences of it. So if there's any area in your life right now where you kind of think, I'm doing this thing, it's not that bad, and I seem like I'm getting away with it, maybe God's giving you up to it. And you better get sober-minded and say, God, don't, don't give me over to my sin. Convict me, humble me, solve me, rip the callus off of my heart, God. I want to love you. And practically, I want to love your law, your moral law. Now, it leads to sexual sin. It leads to homosexual sin. But it leads to all kinds of sin. Look at verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Okay, and then... Look at what it leads to, verse 32. They, though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So, this is another side note, but it's important. This is a lot for your evangelism. Deep down, every single person, spiritually at least, knows three things for sure. There is a God. We have all broken His law. And we all deserve his wrath. That, that, that is the fundamental, foundational principle of the universe. And every human being at the core of their being knows it's true. There is a God. We've broken his law, his character, his heart. Say it how you want to. And judgment is coming that we deserve. Now, most people are trying to suppress that. But here's what I want us to wrestle with personally. Because again, it's real easy in good conservative evangelical churches to stand up 
and yell at the homosexuals and beat them up for all their wicked perversity and ruining our country. But I'm not sure that's the most helpful thing for us to spend most of our time on. I'm not saying there's never a place for that, right? Preach the whole counsel of God. I am saying this. Where is it that you and I, in our own lives, suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Where is it in our own lives that we might be, in a very tiny way, being given over to our sin? Because, see, I think what Paul is doing here is really insightful, and I think it probably hit the Roman church hard the first time they read it. And if we're paying attention, it ought to hit our heart. Because he kind of starts out talking about some of the worst sins, the sexual sin, the homosexual sin. Right? And the real committed believers in Rome and in Birmingham and in Kansas and in Mississippi are sitting around saying, That's right, Paul. You tell him. All those wicked, crazy perverts out there. And then Paul says, Let me just give you the whole list. And he starts going off, you know? Filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Like, Yeah! Evil. Yeah! Covetousness. Ah. You know, envy. Ah. Listen. You read a bunch of commentaries on that little passage, there's no discernible pattern. You understand what I mean? Paul didn't say, let me give you like the really big bad sins up here, murder and sex sins. And then at the end, I'll give you like the soft, you know, white-collar domesticated sins nobody cares about, like disobeying your parents. What's the big deal? I think it's intentional. He mixes them all together. And he might say, you know what? You grew up in a nice family, in a nice home, in a nice neighborhood, in a nice school, and so your sin externally looks a lot better and a lot smaller than somebody that grew up in a worse place in a worse time and blah, 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 right? But don't you get self-righteous. Because when, listen, compared to other human beings, maybe you can look down on people. But you get before the courtroom of God and all of your self-righteousness is going to be slain and destroyed. And you and me and the best of us, like Paul and David and Solomon, are going to get there and say, I've only got one plea. And it's the blood of Jesus. It's something outside of me. Otherwise, I've got no hope. So, please spend some time this week thinking, where is it in my life that I'm self-righteous, that I'm calloused in my heart, that I'm suppressing the truth, even in a tiny way, that maybe God's given me over, maybe even in a tiny way. Don't spend so much time thinking about all the sins out there. Again, there is a place for that. There's a need for that. Spend more time thinking about the sins in here. Rosaria Butterfield, are you all familiar with her? She, you know, very liberal, I think it's Syracuse, you know, head of a whole department on queer studies, living in a homosexual relationship. Uh, she's come to Christ. She's married to a Presbyterian pastor now, homeschool mom. I mean, talk about a very radical change in all sorts of ways. But she has kind of coined this phrase, and I love it. She says, hate my sin, love the sinner. Right now, the kind of historical phrase is, hate the sin, love the sinner, right? And listen, that's true. That's good. But the hard thing, if you're confronting somebody and you're like, I don't hate you, I just hate your sin. But I really love you, brother. <laughs> How do you think they tend to receive that? <laughs> I don't know. It seems like you've got a lot more energy around hating my sin than loving me. So what if it really was? You know what? I do hate sin. But you know the first sin, the main sin that I hate is I hate my own sin. I hate my pride. I hate my fear. I hate my insecurity. 
I hate my arrogance. I hate my self-righteousness. I hate my lust. I hate my greed. I hate my gluttony. Whatever it is. Do you hate those sins over there? Yeah, I hate their sins too. I'll get around to them one day. But I got enough of my own sin I need to be hating right now. Does that make sense? And mainly when I think about those people, I have compassion. I have compassion. Because the only reason that I'm in the place that I'm in is because God and His covenant love said, I choose that guy. I choose that girl. I choose that sinner. I choose that wicked person. What we did in our sin, guys, is we exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We exchanged the glory of worshiping an immortal God to worship ourselves, to serve ourselves. From serving a master whose commands are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3, right? From serving a master that says, yeah, I got a yoke, but my yoke is easy. I got a burden, but my burden's light. And we say, no, no, I want to serve myself. And the burden of sin is crushing. Literally, it'll crush you down into hell. We made that exchange, and God in His mercy made this exchange. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's part of the gospel message. I mean, that might be the shortest gospel summary in the Bible, right? And did you notice what it said? It didn't say, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we can go to heaven when we die. That's true, that's glorious, that's important, but why? So that we can become the righteousness of God. He saves us not based on any of our merit, any of our holiness, any of our righteousness, but the goal is then to make us holy in righteousness, to recreate us in righteousness like Christ. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you never broke a law, but on the cross you were treated like a lawbreaker. You were treated like the consummate lawbreaker, like you had broken trillions of laws for billions of people over thousands of years. And you took the wrath of God in our place. You absorbed it. You extinguished it for us. What a great Savior. What a friend we have in Jesus. God, help us to appreciate your goodness, your kindness, your character, your holiness more than we ever have before. And out of the overflow of our worship and love for you, be delighted to serve you, even when it's hard. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.